Thank you, Kate. Hey, everybody. All right, we're on step four this week, and we are going to use the big book. But before we get there, I want to read a little peek of something in a new pair of glasses. And I'm pretty sure most of you know this book, have this book. Um, and so last week, we were talking a lot about the mind and thinking and self. And so this week, we're really going to get to capture in slow motion that thinking, our thinking. All right, on page 56 of A New Pair of Glasses by Chuck C., he says, we think and ourselves become the thing we think about. We think and ourselves become the thing we think about. That's the way it is with our lives. We duplicate the creator in our little world, in our little word. And that's the reason that it behooves us to know what this thinking apparatus is. Now, I told you I didn't believe in a God of judgment because I don't believe that an infinite can think comparatively. I don't think that God knows the difference between a mohill and a mountain in size because God is both the mohill and the mountain. He doesn't have to think comparatively. He's both the mohill and the mountain. To compare, there has to be otherness. You hear me? So he doesn't have to think comparatively. This makes it unnecessary to have a God of judgment. We have a God of love and a great law of justice without judgment. The law says, what you sow, you reap. You can't plant radishes and get cucumbers. You can't plant radishes and get cucumbers. What you sow, you reap. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. It's a great law of life. And it's just as cold as any law in the universe. It's as cold as the law of electricity. The law of electricity will light that fire, light that light, fry your bacon or fry your fanny. And it's just as comfortable frying your fanny as light, lighting that light. It's the nature of the law. And that just depicts, I mean, that's just, I can't even add to that. But Kate's going to show us the graphic that he uses in the book to depict kind of what we do when we are not a clear channel, right? When the, the So we're about to enter into the fourth step and the fifth step and the six and seven, which is the part of the spiritual principles that clear our channel. You know, step four is a reflective waking up process. I get to reflect on that which I am not aware of yet. And so those things are the very things that keep me in this feeling of being separate, isolated, disconnected from the oneness that we are. And so Chuck uses this image, life, good, and God in the middle. And then when 
he's in his little ego plans and designs like we addressed last week, all his ideas. He's outside feeling separate from the universe and everything in it. Now, of course, this is a delusion. We can't be outside of the, <laughs> of the oneness, but we think we're outside of the oneness. So um, this process that we're about to, to start, Kate's going to lead us in that, will help us see how we think ourselves right out of the experience of our truth, which is that we're all one. All right, Kate, over to you. Thanks, Elizabeth. We're going to pick up in the big book on the top of page 64. I like to think, and when I work with women, say the only reason we do step four, it says on page 64 in the first paragraph, to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which are blocking us. That's it. Step four is not a catalog of who I am. It's a catalog of who I'm not the things that haven't been effective for me. And that's a Don P quote, that it's the things I'm not. It's not the things I am, which means there may actually be things that are working for me in my life. Maybe not, but you know, there may be things in my life that we're not gonna put on the fourth step because they're not unsaleable goods. They're effective ways of being in the world. But it's great to also just go into the fourth step like I did at the beginning with, I just don't know. I don't know what I'm doing effectively. I don't know what I'm doing ineffectively. Everything that I'm not sure about is going down on this piece of paper. So it says, our liquor was but a symptom. So we have a deeper problem than the, than the booze, a deeper problem than the manifestation, than the control, than the sugar, than the sex, than the gambling, right? We had to get down to causes and conditions. So this really, this step is going to answer the question, why am I experiencing what I'm experiencing in life? And to go back to what Chuck said, I can't plant radishes and get cucumbers. I didn't understand that I was planting radishes. And I was looking everywhere in my life for cucumbers. And then I was mad at God for not giving me cucumbers. Like, don't I deserve cucumbers? I'm a good, good cucumber deserving person. But I had no idea what, you know, what I was actually planting. I didn't know the truth from the false, as Dr. Silkworth, you know, diagnosed me back in the doctor's opinion. So we're writing down the resentments, the fears, the harms to extract what is true. And to use a process different than the mind, outside of the mind, we're just going to use a mechanism that's worked for 100 other people or 2 million other people. I'm just going to get into it with an open mind. So the conditions that are created by the resentment, fears, and harms are suffering. And it's usually the suffering that gets me to the place of being willing to do a fourth step. Um, and so we're going to trace back what what we put down on the page to see if there's anything before it where I, as the book says, set the ball rolling. And uh, this is a really important place to set aside everything I think I know. Um, one of our favorite teachers, Michael Singer, talks about that what's happening in us is there is energy that is trying to flow through us in life. And it gets blocked by all of the stored garbage from the past 
that then forms our preferences for the world. And so we're angry and we're out in the world trying to get what we want, as Elizabeth talked about last week. And so as we work this step, what we're actually doing is literally being open to the dismantling of these things inside us that we have no idea are the radishes. And, and they are. And um, okay, so now we are going to start on resentment. Page 66. Um, so resentments are the number one offender. Oh, I'm sorry. I think that's actually um, on page 64. It destroys more, more of us than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease. We've been not only mentally and physically ill, we've been spiritually sick. And so um, we, we're given the example of the first three columns on page 65. And then as we get over to page 66, there's a huge piece of information that just blew my mind wide open. It is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. I had no idea my futility and unhappiness was because I was nursing things in my mind and not letting go. That was a revelation. To the precise extent that we permit these. This means I am permitting my resentments to live and thrive in my being. I am choosing to cultivate the resentment. I am choosing to refeel. I'm choosing to rethink. I am choosing to get in that gerbil wheel all the time. And so um, what we are going to do is we're going to just kind of tell you like first column, People places, people, places, institutions, and things, principles, institutions, and people. Second column is um, what we think they did to us. Where I have had a huge amount of healing and growth is in something, and I'm going to put it in the chat. The third column is of resentments is where we examine the instincts. And in the book, on page 65, you see these in the parentheses. I'm sorry, not the parentheses. You see them under affects my. The way a lot of people do a fourth step third column on the resentment inventory is that they just check the box of self-esteem, pride, security, ambition, personal relations, sex relations, and pocketbook. I've done it that way. It's been effective. But, but for most of my sobriety, this is how I've done a third column of resentments where I write about each instinct. I ask myself, not just if my self-esteem is affected, how do I feel in this resentment? Pride, what do I think you think about me in this resentment? So I'm going to give you an example um, because apparently that's what God wants me to do. We'll see. I wrote this last night and I'm not totally clear today. I'm really not. I'm still, I'm still resentful. So um, I'm resentful at my grandfather for um, taking huge amounts of money, in my opinion, from my mother when she didn't have it 15 years ago. Self-esteem. I feel sad. Um, I also feel superior and I feel smart. I feel recovered. I feel spiritual and I feel better than, which is another way of saying superior, but that's how superior I feel. Pride. I think he thinks I owe him money. Security. I need my grandfather and my mom to change the past for me to be okay. I need a family that is financially 
self-supporting, sane, honest, and full of integrity for me to be okay when I feel this resentment. I need a different past and I need everybody around me to be different or I'm not going to be okay. Ambition. I want my grandfather to see that I don't owe him any money and my mom doesn't owe him any money. Personal relations. This is gets to beliefs I have. People um, or adults should take responsibility for their own lives. They should be self-supporting. People shouldn't be sick around money. People shouldn't be sick around their families. All these beliefs I have of people should. Sex relations, I don't think it really affects my sex relations. Maybe, um, you know, grown men should be providers. I don't know, rather than moochers. Uh, pocketbook, I won't have enough money because I will owe, I will, this money is tainted. The money that I have that my grandfather says that I owe him because my mother died is tainted. So that was really transparent. We just got it a lot of really deep, dark stuff, right? That's what's really going on every time I think about my grandfather. Every time I think about my mother's death, until God clears this and I do the next column and then the fears, this is what's operating in me. It's how I see the world. It's how I see all of you. And I'm going out in the world trying to get these instincts met by using all of you and my relationships to change how I feel. That's why this work is so important. Elizabeth, do you want to take it from there? Thank you, Kate. That was beautiful that you were that transparent. I love that you gave us an example. Uh, and I just laughed because we have the same head, you know, and that's what happens has happened for me over time. The more I do this, the more I can read this with my sponsor or talk about it with other women and laugh and share because our shame and our guilt falls away because ultimately we're all the same. We all have the same little minds. Um, when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. And that spiritual malady is the concepts that I hold, right? So Kate just gave us a great story. And then there were all these threads in this story. So there were all these little storylines. So it's not just a couple of thoughts. It's there's so many thoughts. There's It's like the book talks about the corroding thread, right? We're shot through with it. And the analogy of like um, a piece of clothing, if you, you can't see the threads in clothing, like especially look at my pants. I mean, there's like, there's like so many threads in these, um, in these pants and there's just, they're just, we're, we're shot through with it. And that's what separates me, right? That's what puts me or makes me think I'm outside of the whole, a separate entity buzzing through my life, me, myself, and I. And then that's where the isolation, the separation, um, the disconnected starts to wrestle with, with me. That's the spiritual malady for me. I think I'm not part of the collective consciousness. I think I'm not part of the whole. And I begin to respond that way. And so when I'm looking through life with my story, I, yeah, sure, this is the way I do it and I'm walking through, but what's really, really um, a handicap for me is that it shuts me off from the 
infinite possibilities that are outside my conception, right? I have this fixed idea and there's this infinite potential and I can't tap into it. I can't touch it because I'm blocked. I'm blocked. It's like, boom, I'm just blocked. And so what we do is we take all those, those intricate little threads and we lay them down the way that Kate outlined. And um, that third column, I also learned that from the first sponsor, Lauren. She taught me to not only write what it affects, but how it affects me. And that helps me or has helped me through the years get deeper into my little plans and my little designs and the way my mind works. Not so that I can then go, um, oh, great, this is the way my mind works. I'm not going to do that anymore <laughs> because I don't have that kind of power. I am powerless, right? Um, so it says nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. So that's really the key. I just have to be thorough. When, I, when I'm in doubt, write it out. When I'm in doubt, write it out. Should I put this on my fourth step? I'm not sure. Maybe I should. Just put it down, put it down. That's always been the rule of thumb. And then I love that she put, you pointed out that to the precise extent that we permit these. Permit what? Permit the mind to run my life. If I'm driven by self-reliance, I am running the show. I am the only one that can take, and the book tells us this later on, that I have the power, I get the power back to align my will to God's will so that I can not be responsible for that first thought, but I am responsible for that second thought. I get the ability to watch, and that comes a little bit later, but this is the beginning of the process because in the 10th step, this is what we're doing, four through seven, four through seven, four through seven. We do this for forever. We just, you know, well, I don't know forever, but as long as we've got these egos. Um, so. Okay, so let's talk about turning back. So we got the resentment, the person, the principal institution. We've got the cause. Oh, in the first column, if you haven't done a resentment yet on yourself, huge part of the healing process, huge part. I, for years, was too arrogant to see that I needed to put myself on my fourth step. I... That, that's for me. Maybe, maybe you don't need to do that. But for me, I finally got to the place of hit that bottom again in sobriety. And my sponsor asked me, have you ever done a fourth step on yourself? And I'm like, what? You don't do that. You know, but I didn't say that to Gwen. I just said, oh, well, I, I've never done that before, but I'm willing to do it. And so I did it. And there you go. So that's your first column. Second column, the cause. And that, you know, for my whole life, all the reasons Elizabeth was a screw up isn't, you know, all the problems. Um, and then we get that third column, what's affected, how is it affected? I get to see all my beliefs, my shoulds, my if they would only do this, if I would only do that. And then that fourth column, we turn back to the list and we're going to look at page 67 and page 67, we're going to refer to the list again, middle of the page, putting out of our minds the wrongs others have done. We resolutely turn our turn, um, we look for our own mistakes. And then we just ask ourselves, where had we been selfish? 
Where had we been dishonest? Where had we been self-seeking and frightened? And when I flushed out, and my first sponsor taught me this, when I flush out that third column, there's so much, it's all selfish, dishonest fears get un, um, revealed in that third column. So I literally just put like a F or an SS or an S or a D and I circled it so that when I read my my inventory to Lauren, we could just see, you know, and, and then I could just skim down and see what was the predominant in that resentment. Um, though a situation that may not have entirely been our fault, we tried to disregard the other person involved entirely where, and then the other question we ask is where was I to blame? You know, where was I to blame? The inventory was ours, not the other man's. When we saw our faults, we listed them. So we list down our faults. We place them in black and white. We admit our wrongs honestly, and we were willing to set these matters straight. Um, anything else on the fourth step, Kate, before we go to fears? No. No, okay. All right, so now we're gonna look at the bottom of page 67. This also is a four column inventory. And it says that, um, I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to go right to the root of it so that if you would like to this week, do a resentment, fear, and sex inventory um, in this fashion, you could, you can. Top of page 68, one, number one, <clears throat> we reviewed our fears thoroughly. I simply make a list of my fears, right? And those get extracted from that third column in the resentments, right? We uncover a lot of fears we weren't aware of. We become conscious. We put them on paper, even though we had no resentment in connection with them. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. We asked ourselves why we had them. Second column is, why do I have this fear? Why do I have this fear? Well, then she won't like me. Okay, well, she won't like you, then what? Well, she'll gossip and talk about me. And then what? Well, then my friends, they'll exclude me from the group. And then what? So we spiral, that's called spiraling the fear out. We want to get to the root of the fear, right? What's underneath? Third column, wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? This is a yes or no column. Has self-reliance failed me? Yes, no. If we get to no or yes, whatever we get to, we then move down because we, the next paragraph tells us we're moving to the new basis, right? We're moving from self-reliance to God-reliance. The foundation of my being is going to now be living and breathing with and in the spirit of the universe when we get to those, those steps that are coming up, right? So this is the beginning of, of recognizing that my new ground, the fertile soil is changing. It's different. Um, we also learn here that we're in the role, we're in the this world to play the role that God assigns, right? This is God's deal, not ours. Just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, he enables us to, ma to match calamity with serenity. So God takes care of us by surrender and ask and do his will. Now, the fourth column of the fear inventory is the bottom, uh, the second to last paragraph on the page. At towards the end, it says, instead, we let God demonstrate through us what he can do. We ask him to remove our fear. So before we go from third column to fourth column, I say a prayer, God, 
please take this fear and show me what you would have me be. And then I'm in quiet contemplation. I rest here. There's a space. If the mind has a quick answer, that's okay. Just, just let that go. And like we did with the contemplative meditation with the question, we're contemplating a question. What would God have me be? And then we sit and then we write what comes and that's what God would have us be. Okay, Kate, I'm gonna let you do sex. <laughs> well, would you like to tell the story of do versus be since we work with so many women who uh, struggle oh. with that? Okay, all right. So let me just tell you quickly the story of do versus be. So I started working with Gwen uh, about 17 years sober and I went to her and she's taken me through the work. Now, Gwen got sober in 1970 when I was born, mind you. That was the year I was born. And so I sit down, wait, we get to this part, and she says, um, you know, you ask, I said, well, I, when I get to that fourth column, I ask God what I, what I could be and also what, I, what he wants me to be and also what I should do. And she said, huh, okay. She paused reflected and she said well the book says it says um you know be that we ask god you know he, it says here what he can do that that's god's part and then it says it that we ask him what he would have us be and i said yeah i know but the way that i was just brought through the work the guy, you know, he told me that you can do do and be. And she just sat back in her chair and said, okay. And that was it. And we moved on. Well, that little seed was in my head and it marinated. And what I discovered was that my sponsor knows better than me. And so eventually I began to practice what it says in the book. And I had a whole different experience and completely transformed the way I did a fear inventory. And so thank you for the teachers that have gone before. Thank you, Gwen. Okay, now sex. Now about sex. Many of us needed an overhauling there, which I was taught that overhauling doesn't mean I need a light dusting of some slightly different behaviors and thoughts. Overhauling means like everything gets turned up and upside down. Um, boy, has that been my experience. So again, a four column inventory. We reviewed our conduct, the book says. It doesn't say we reviewed our partners. It says we reviewed our conduct. Um, so I, I, you know, fantasies, right? Um, uh, so I used to have relationships that only existed in my mind. They didn't actually ever happen. Um, I mean, they were exciting and wonderful and very fulfilling, but it, it had nothing to do with anybody else. Um, so we have a list of um, whom had we hurt. I'm sorry, let me just go back to the book. We reviewed our conduct. I'm on page 69 over the years past. Um, where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? 
where were we at fault and what should we have done instead? Um, we got this all down in paper and looked at it. And then it talks about we are, um, we subjected each relation to this test as we try to form a sane and sound ideal of our future sex life. Um, one of uh, one of our teachers talks about instead of calling it a sex ideal, a life ideal, because who I am in my sex life is who I am in life. So I'm making an ideal for my life because, right, there's no more Kate in her sex life, Kate at work, Kate with her sponsees, Kate in the meeting. It's Kate, right? If I have integrity with money, I have integrity with food. I have integrity with you. So this life ideal is we subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? And here's the prayer. We ask God to mold our ideals and to help us to live up to them. Then we're guided by the principle that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised or loathed. And then again, in meditation, we ask God about what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. This means apparently we're supposed to be meditating by this point. Because if we're supposed to be meditating on our sex life, yeah, that's an Elizabethism. She discovered that when we were prepping for the meeting. I can't take credit for that. God alone can tell us what's right. But this means I'm supposed to be using this relationship with the power to guide my sex life in step four. Suppose we fall short of the, of the chosen ideal. Now we're on page 70. If I'm not sorry and my conduct continues to harm others, I'm sure to drink again. And it says these are facts out of AA experience. Um, and then again, another prayer about sex. We earnestly pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity, for the strength to do the right thing. If sex is very troublesome instruction, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. And um, one of the things I've loved um, on this, in this area um, from a book study we did recently was I'm willing to give as much emotionally and physically as I get with an open heart and no agenda. Woo, that's a tall order right there. And may all the people I've been intimate with walk away with love, light, and the spirit of God. And um, I also do a harms inventory. If there are harms that aren't sex related, I use the exact same columns it uses with sex for like lying, cheating, stealing, things that don't have to do with sex. Um, and there's a promise. And the promise says God can remove, top of page 71, whatever self-will has blocked you off from. Elizabeth? beautiful place to end. So now we'll do our meditation and rest in that promise. Um, God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. God can and will if he is sought. So we'll set the timer for five minutes. Kate, you want to set the timer? Okay. And we'll just contemplate God can and will. Can your God, can the God you have experience with today? All right. Or any other meditation you want to do in this moment for the, our next five minutes. <laughs> 
to have a great meditation.